I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And with all the focus on impeachment and the primaries, I bet you didn't even know that France is an extended turmoil. It doesn't seem to get much mainstream media attention, but France is experiencing the longest general strikes since May 1968, when the entire economy was ground to a halt by students and workers in an all-out revolt against the government. While street actions are exceedingly rare in these United States, the people of France generally appear to be far more attuned to politics and understand its effects on everyday life. Thus, when economic injustices are perceived, strikes and protests are done with great enthusiasm and widespread participation. French people have been baffled by the complacency of Americans. Why aren't you out in the streets, they wonder? Those of us who were around back in 68 certainly remember the rather exciting solidarity of the student and worker revolt across France in that historic year 1968. And more recently, Americans heard about the Yellow Vest Movement. Our guest today, Gabriel Rockhill, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Villanova University and founder of the Critical Theory Workshop in Paris, addresses the long and to many mysterious worker uprising currently still underway in France. His article in Counterpunch is titled Understanding France's General Strike in the Context of the Yellow Vests and Global Class Warfare. Thanks very much for being with us, Gabriel. Thanks for having me on. Lefties around the world have long been inspired by the get-down-to-action French workers. We're going to talk about what's going on, why don't we hear about it, and in what ways it is, some, is it something reflecting a growing worldwide economic and political struggle. Perhaps workers of the world uniting, applicable everywhere as part and parcel of a reaction to neoliberal globalism. Well, again, Gabriel Rockhill is a Franco-American philosopher and cultural critic. He's associate professor of philosophy at Villanova, founding director of the Atelier de Théorie Critique, at Sorbonne, my French is not very good. His books include Counter History of the Present, Untimely Interrogations into Globalization, Technology, and Democracy from 2017, Interventions in Contemporary Thought, History, Politics, Aesthetics, 2016, Radical History and the Politics of Art uh, and from 2014, and The uh, Logic of History. It has a French title, but I'll leave it at that, from 2010. In addition to his scholarly work, he's been actively engaged in extra-academic affairs in the art and activist worlds, as well as a regular contributor to public intellectual debate. We discussed the French Yellow Vest movement on Keeping Democracy Alive last fall. Thanks for coming back on. So let's, Thank let, you. let's start with the basics. What is going on? When did it start? And what's it all about? 
So there's a massive strike that involves more than 1.5 million French workers, and it began on December 5th. But this really is just the latest chapter in a kind of ongoing confrontation between Emmanuel Macron's neoliberal, quote-unquote, austerity measures and the working population on whose backs these are being imposed. And so I'm sure as we talk through this, we can further contextualize this. But the most recent developments have to do with the retirement plan that Macron has proposed. This is a major systemic overhaul of the uh, current pension plans. And this would be uh, financed by increasing the original plan was to increase the minimum retirement age from 62 to 64. Uh, This has now the government is proposing what they refer to as a concession, but most activists on the ground recognize as pure political theater Mm -hmm. to modify that and have a point system that would allow the maintenance of the retirement age at 62. But ultimately, with the point system, this could be adapted to life expectancy, GDP budget, etc., so that the government would still control exactly when people can retire. Mm. And the other thing that the uh, retirement plan is, is pushing through is a shift from 42 different retirement programs that currently exist into a unique system, or so a single system for everyone that would sharply reduce the benefits for many workers as well as their their security. These different programs uh, only really affect about 1% of workers in France, but they're those workers who are subjected to physically demanding jobs, dangerous Mm. jobs, uh, etc., and uh, Macron has already decided that he would keep the exceptions in place for the uh, for the police and the kind of security apparatus. So obviously he has a particular agenda in mind in this regard. So overall, we can understand this as a change in practical terms that would be financed on the backs of working people who would be expected to work longer with less pay, less security, um, rather than, for instance, uh, having the reform being based on increasing taxes on corporations or on the wealthy, which would be another very easy solution, or for that matter, cutting military and police spending. Mm. So in relationship to this uh, proposed counter-reform, the French National Railway Company, the SNCF, uh-huh. and the Paris's public transportation system, who, reply, who rely really on a lot of these special pension plans, called for a continuous period of uh, striking and strike actions on December 5th. And it has the movement has grown ever since. There are dock workers involved, nurses and doctors, teachers and students, uh, many workers in the energy and transportation sectors, doctors, I'm sorry, dockers, as well as lawyers. So it's both public sector and private sector. And this has led to uh, a strangle, uh, strangling of the transportation networks. Numerous mm-hmm. flights have been grounded. The eight major oil refineries have been on strike uh, intermittently. Um, and the strike currently has an approval rating of about 60% compared mm-hmm. to the, I think, Macron's approval rating is around between 22 and 25%. And so there's clear support on the part of the French majority for the strikes that are currently um, going on against this reform and more generally against the neoliberal austerity measures being imposed by Macron. Oh, there's so much to unpack there. Uh, and, you know, you got to leave it to the French. Boy, they know how to organize and to get things done. And I'm just curious. The, the point system and how this reform came about, did it involve those, I mean, those people who were affected by it, were they able to participate in the decision-making, or was it is it kind of top-down? I have no, no idea. No, of course not. There's uh, an not attempt surprised. to impose a kind of top-down set of measures that uh-huh. would, the from a 
Anglo-American perspective, it's really about privatizing the pension plan. And so that I'm sure, I'm not privy to this information, but I'm sure that there were backroom back discussions between the Macron government and all of those uh, companies at risk to profit from these types of changes. And the, the point system is really trying to um, uh, transform a system based on at least principle of worker solidarity to one in which each individual worker would be assessed uh, based on the type of job that they work, the amount of money that they produced, and the points would be created in such a way that they would be calculated over the entire lifetime of a worker um, rather than just the the current system just looks at the 75% of the final years of one's working life. So if you imagine the number of precarious and chaotic jobs that many workers today work at least early on, if not uh, you know continuing, uh, that means it's really um, trying to lower pensions across the board and target particular populations, uh, women in particular, given the... Uh, at least tendency of certain women to uh, either take off time to sure. have children mm-hmm. or have more precarious relationship to the work system, right. it's clear that if their retirements are calculated over their entire career oh, and they wow. did end up taking off time for child care, for instance, or yes. for um, giving birth, then this will have a disproportionate impact on them. Ah, oh, what a surprise. Uh, and uh, my general impression is that French labor unions have been Pretty amazing that the railway workers are often at the vanguard of movements that spread to other sectors, as you have explained. And I noticed uh, very recently in the New York Times, uh, the Louvre had to shut down. That's some serious stuff. People were upset about that. And the whole point is to make noise and to upset the apple cart. And I'm sure uh, that... What this is uh, trying to address, what Macron and what this whole new uh, pension reform is about is somehow saving money. Um, Was this, uh, here in New Hampshire, we often say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Was it broke? Did it need fixing? And did it need fixing in this way? Well, what the uh, Macron regime is doing, uh, of course, is uh, proposing a quote-unquote reform that will benefit those who are the most wealthy and in take basically security, job security and um, uh, financial support away from the working majority. Uh, what you said regarding the importance of the transportation networks is very significant. I think this also has to do with the ways in which these targeted actions have developed and that if you, as workers do, control the transportation network, the, which includes not only the trains, of course, and the subways, but also uh, the fuel industry, uh, and for that matter, the electrical workers have been very involved, and so they've been able to, uh, through the targeted cutting of electricity, um, also have a very significant impact on the daily functioning of the lives of most people, uh, as well as on those who are making uh, the most money, meaning the major corporations and the governments who are working for them. So in that regard, I do think that, uh, tactically speaking, the transportation network in the broad sense of the term is particularly important, and that what we see here is the power to blockade and to strangle the kind of transportation networks and thereby uh, reveal the extent to which workers do have real control over how the economy functions and how society should be organized. 
Indeed, there's more of workers than there are owners. Hmm, funny how that works. (laughs) Now, Emmanuel Macron is certainly known in the U.S., but it's unclear as to who he is. You know, he got to be president in 2017, uh, not as clear. It wasn't, it appears to have been a case of voting against one candidate rather than for Macron. Who is Emmanuel Macron? How popular is he? What, you know, who does he, he represent? And and as you say, Macron's government is labeled as the government of the rich and that uh, he is simply one elite technocratic implementer among many on the global stage. What, what do you mean? How wide is that perception in France? Well, Macron is, he's a former investment banker. And as you noted, he came to power in 2017 as a purported bulwark against the right-wing extremism of the National Front. And so he didn't really have the support of the broader population. And since he's been in office, I think that we can understand his project to date in terms of three major reference points. Uh, One is that, as the French uh, activists and strikers have regularly said, the Macron regime is a government for the rich. Uh, There are many, many examples of this. I'll just highlight one of the most flagrant. That is that until 2017, there was a solidarity tax on wealth and on any net assets above 800,000 euros. And what Macron did is he uh, abolished that solidarity tax. So that the um, orientation that he has now to the reform of the pension system needs to be seen in this larger context where what he's taking away from the workers who are beneath him financially, he's, of course, then redistributing upward to those who are the wealthiest within France. So the government for the rich is one aspect of what Macron has been dedicated to. His support of the El Khamri uh, law, which is a labor law that allows companies to lay off workers, reduce overtime payments, reduce severance payments, etc., is another example of his alignment on the uh, wealthy or the the 1%. The second aspect that I would highlight is that Macron has really increased military and police spending in significant ways. So France just increased military spending by 1.7 billion euros in 2019, making for the total defense budget of 35.8 billion euros, which is enormous. And this follows on the heels of an increase in 2018 of 1.8 billion euros. And he's done the same with police spending, right? He promised during his electoral campaign to recruit some 10,000 new members of the police force. And this is now a priority for him in 2020. There'll be, uh, or there was a hundred million dollar, uh, hundred million euro increase in the budget uh, for the Minister of the Interior between 2019 and 2020. Right, so we see both of these factors playing an important role. It's the upward redistribution of wealth to the rich, while uh, increasing governmental spending to defense and to the police. And then the final element that I think is really important to understand what Macron is doing is this ongoing assault on the worker population. The reform, or I would say counter-reform of the pension is the latest example of this, but he has been um, aligned on a kind of privatization and a dismantling of French social services that is favorable to the rich and is really an assault on working people. 
the last thing I'd say, and I'm sure that we can talk more about this, is that you see these three elements of governing for the rich, increasing military spending, and assaulting workers really come to a head in the way in which the repressive state apparatus of the police force has been unleashed on the general population in extremely vicious ways mm. uh, that far surpass, in fact, that have been called out and called into question by international organizations like Amnesty International, really? wow. the European Union, etc., and is part of the ways in which he's trying to destroy worker movements from below. So it's not just an economic assault, it's also a violent, repressive assault that I hope we can talk more about. Well, let's do it right now. I mean, the, the police have their funding increased. It sounds like uh, uh, the uh, the president, uh, Macron, is kind of fanning the flames and uh, boosting uh, the, uh, the presence of police. Uh, and, and so have they acted with appropriate restraint? I always find it uh, somewhat amusing that uh, whenever the police here in this country, you know, go a little bit overboard, uh, some leader praises them for their remarkable restraint. <laughs> What's the reality there in France, and, and how are the people taking it? Well, France, I think, is really, at least within the Euro-American world, at the cutting edge of repressive police technologies and tactics. Oh, great. There have been... In 2019, some 4,000 people injured, 2,500 of them were protesters, and the injuries are uh, largely a result of militarized weaponry and uh, tactics that are really trying to keep people at home and destroy the possibility of collective organizing. So there's been at least, these are minimal numbers, 318 head injuries, 25 people have lost their eye, five people have lost hands. Uh, and the police have been, and, and in particular, there are a, a series of um, specific types of police brigades and riot police that are uh, targeting the leaders of movements, but then also just trying to break up protest movements in general. And they've been removing their badges, hiding their faces, oh, wow. and taking off uh, what's referred to, it's the RIO, it's the Référence Identité Organisation, and it's basically the badge that says uh, who the particular agent, police agent, is and what organization they belong to. And they've either been uh, uh, masking them, not wearing them, etc., wow. so that then any time the police beat up particular protesters, they can't have recourse to, to legal action. And one thing that is very important, I think, to understand in this, this context of a brutal assault that, of course, predates the current strikes because it goes back to the entire Yellow Vest movement, uh -huh. which I know we'll probably talk oh, yeah. about as well, oh, yeah. that's been going on since fall of last year, as well as to Macron's brutal assault on the Zod, which was in, uh, is an autonomous region in France. And that one thing that we see in France, and that I think we have to um, identify as part of uh, the larger kind of repressive tactics of what some people refer to as the global police state, uh -huh. is that instead of simply trying to maintain order within a particular protest, there's actually a direct attack on mass mobilizations. And you, there are many, many videos that demonstrate this clearly, where you have a peaceful protest that is marching, and then the police will charge in order to divide the protest in two and just indiscriminately beat anyone in their way, including onlookers, children, um, old people. It doesn't matter. Um, and so in that regard, there really is an uptick in the repressive attempt to destroy uh, public mobilization that is nonviolent. Wow. Uh, I would think that, you know, if, if people know about this in France, and France has a long 
rather proud tradition of, uh, you know, speaking out and participating. Is the mainstream media covering this uh, police excess, this, uh, you know, kind of police riot as it used to be in uh, 68 here in in uh, Chicago? Uh, is the mainstream media covering this? And how is this uh, excess uh, going down? Well, the mainstream media in the United States, as you mentioned in your opening comments, is, uh, of course, almost completely like ignored exist, uh, yeah. what is going on in France. Oh, yeah. And there is a dearth of coverage of radical social movements around the world, as well as a dearth of coverage regarding the extent of the police repression and the violent uh, state crackdown. Within France itself, mm. it's true that a lot of the media, the state-controlled media and the corporate media, is very much aligned on the Macron regime. And we've seen repeated examples of this. And so it's within the alternative progressive press within France that you have extensive coverage of the, the police violence and as well of the, uh, the mobilizations. And so, you know, I'd be happy to share particular resources if anybody, hap- if any of your listeners happen to read uh, in French, but it is difficult to find reliable information. Um, there is a journalist, a French journalist by the name of David Dufresne, who has done really excellent work for Mediapart in keeping tabs on the number of injured individuals mm. uh, and, and, and groups of individuals, as well as an organization called Coordination Premier Secours, which is a coordination of first aid workers. And they've been publishing more or less weekly the number of people who have been injured in protests. And these vary from every single week. There's at least you know, a handful of people who have been injured, but there are weeks in which it's 350, 400 people. And so, uh, fortunately, there's some of this work that's being done on the ground in order to keep tabs on what's happening. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about France, what's going on in France. You probably haven't heard about it anywhere else. But our guest today is uh, Gabriel Rockhill, who... uh, it covers French politics uh, quite a bit. He's associate professor of philosophy at Villanova, and his article in Counterpunch, which I recommend, is titled "Understanding French France's General Strike in the Context of Yellow Vests and Global Class Warfare." I'm going to talk about those two uh, things. Let's first talk about the the Yellow Vest movement. What was or is the Yellow Vest movement, and in what ways did it set the context? for the current street actions? What, what is the relationship? What is the context? So the Yellow Vest movement is really one of the largest uh, grassroots social movements in recent history that uh, overtook France beginning in earnest uh, not in the fall of 2018. And like all mass movements, of course, it's very, it's multi-form, it's dynamic, there are different actors, different organizations involved. But a few general characteristics that we can identify is that it's a movement that didn't grow directly out of the traditional mechanisms of political representation, so out of unions or out of political parties, but instead was a kind of worker movement that bubbled up from below. It began around a proposed fuel uh, tax that Macron was going to impose, and this was, of course, just one more element in his ongoing assault on workers. But this is simply a symptom, you know, like the so many other symptoms that we've seen around the world in transnational uh, social movements, like the attacks on WhatsApp in, in Lebanon, for instance. And what we have to do is look beyond this immediate symptom and look at the deeper roots to this. And I think that the Yellow Vest movement has to be understood 
as a rejection, of course, of the neoliberal austerity measures imposed by the Macron regime, but combined with an attempt to kind of radicalize worker movement in a context in which a lot of the unions have uh, developed a kind of labor aristocracy of sorts, in which they're not necessarily aligned on the most radical tactics, and they often just mediate between the workers and then the corporate ownership class. And there's also a disappointment with the traditional uh, political parties and uh-huh. the general electoral system that does not allow for rapid change uh, based on uh, popular demands. And so one of the elements that I think is really important for understanding the Yellow Vest movement is a broader set of um, actions and, and demands that have to do with restructuring the relationship between the government and workers. Probably the best example of that is one of the demands is for what's called the the RIC. So it's uh, in English, it would be an acronym for the Citizens Initiative Referendum, which is a constitutional amendment oh, that wow. would allow for the general citizenry by referendum to propose in, or abrogate particular laws to... Um, uh, uh, call for the revocation of politicians' mandates or for constitutional amendments and other such things. Uh, Macron's reaction to the Yellow Vest has been a combination, really, of the extreme repressive state apparatus um, reaction that I was mentioning earlier and a kind of political theater in which he set up what he called the Grand Debat which is basically an opportunity for a televised discussion with members of the managerial class that was orchestrated by Mm -hmm. the government and produced the illusion that there was a kind of openness to democratic change, but there's been no significant and um, uh, profound change on his part. So I think that uh, one of the other elements, and I'm sure that we can talk more about this, is what people refer to as the kind of yellow vesticization of the strike that's currently going on, because we see some of the direct action tactics and the radical worker mobilization within the strike. I hope I can pronounce it right. I, I try to pronounce French. Gilejonization, is that right? Or is it gilejonization? Yeah, gilejonization, or the yellow vesticization, I guess, would be the closest that we could get in English. So they, uh, I, I, it's, it's interesting, I guess they, uh, you know, innovative, combative forms of struggle uh, beyond you know, it's it's like uh, building on itself. It sounds like building beyond a, a, the narrow confines of a circumscribed list of okay demands. Uh, so they've been exactly. creative on this, and uh, that that's got to be very frightening to the powers that be. People actually taking action and demanding democracy, actual democracy. Uh, how? What is the so pu- public opinion regarding the strike? And there's a lot more to talk about, like with relation to international stuff. But in France, you say the government is preparing to depict workers as stubborn, irrational, anti-democratic if they do not stop the strike. What are the trends in, in public attitude among the French public, and how is that, uh, you know, trying to picture them as irrational, anti-democratic if they don't stop the strike? How's that going over? Well, the most recent uh, polls that I've seen uh, show that there's some 60% approval rating of the strike. And it is true that the current 
counter-reform will have a disproportionate impact on the overwhelming majority of the population. So it's not at all surprising that the people targeted by this counter-reform would identify with the strikers if they're actually part of the movement or if they're kind of supportive onlookers in various ways. I would like to add, because I think it's important what you highlighted and maybe give a few examples of this, that the direct action tactics are very creative and have really forced the hand of the government in particular ways. Uh, There have been, for instance, extended blockades on petrol facilities, which doesn't, that don't allow for uh, fuel to enter or or to leave the refineries. The electrical workers have been doing, uh, I mentioned this just earlier, they've they've restored power to certain poor neighborhoods and reduced rates as well to, um, particular poor neighborhoods, while also then cutting electricity to governmental buildings, police headquarters, uh, the reformist union headquarters as well. Uh, So there's a whole series of very creative tactics that aren't necessarily controlled by the union leadership, Uh or for that matter, by any leadership. And the most recent examples of this include, over the last week, the uh, endeavor on the part of... uh, very highly mobile and radicalized strikers to make sure that Macron, whatever he tries to do, is constantly interrupted. So he was going to a theater performance and uh, activists uh, stormed the theater and he had to have be escorted out by the police. Uh, They did the same thing when he was having a major meeting uh, with uh, corporate owners of major multinational corporations. And so there's a real sense in which a lot of the strikers on the ground are saying that the the union leaders are not the ones right. who decide. It's the workers and the strikers who uh-huh. decide. And so to come full circle to the original question that you asked, yeah, I think that the government is uh, very scared of what's going on and is worried that they won't be able to push through the reforms. Like this happened actually in 1995. There was a major uh, strike at that point in time that was ultimately more or less successful. And so I think that Macron's reaction to this, it's, it's really a threefold reaction, which is, continue the brutal assault on the workers' movement, uh, present a kind of liberal political theater to the general public through the mass media, and then thirdly, play the waiting game and hope Uh that the resources dwindle and that people will need to go back to work um, and that that will help alleviate the pressures being put on by the strike. Well, it it certainly could happen. And, and you know, I don't know. I know in, in uh, formerly Great Britain, not so great anymore, they have, uh, uh, they can call elections. Is that the case in France? I mean, we're talking about protest here, but there's also, you know, is there uh, participatory, you know, actual voting that's possible? Can Macron be ousted, you know, uh, by, by a vote of no confidence or something like that? Or is he in for a certain period of time? Sort of like the United States. Well, that's one of the things that the Yellow Vest movement has been trying to mobilize. And I probably should have mentioned earlier that the Yellow Vest did uh, vote prior to the onset of the strike that began on December 5th to join in mm-hmm. on the strike. So what you see is a kind of confluence of the Yellow Vest movement over, you know, well over a year at this point in time and the union-guided strike, and that the Yellow Vest call, one of them has been for Macron to step down from power. Uh And that this 
the claim is that we shouldn't have to wait for the standardized electoral cycle in order to do that. And, of course, we do have examples through the course of the square movements and other such movements over the last uh, decade or more uh. of massive mobilizations from below that force leaders to step down from power. And I think that that's still, uh, it's definitely still on the agenda and I think should be on the agenda because it's clear that with some 20 to 25 percent support uh, among the general population, the Macron regime is, uh, has had a general vote of non-confidence. And so waiting for the electoral calendar to yeah. you know, come around to another election is much too slow for many of the people there. And I think that that's an extremely valid position to take. Well, I would think so. Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Gabrielle Rockhill, uh, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Villanova University and kind of an expert in French politics. And we're talking about uh, the big general strike in France that you haven't heard of. It hasn't been on the mainstream media. France, understanding France's general strike in the context of yellow vests and global class warfare. I don't know why, listening to you, I keep getting this uh, image of uh, Louis XVI in my head somehow. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. No, there have been, through the course of the Yellow Vest movement, uh, like most radical social movements, an attempt to resuscitate uh, high points of revolutionary struggle in the past uh -huh. and reinvent them in the current conjuncture. Sure. There's really interesting work that uh, colleague Sophie Vanish uh, has done on precisely this issue. And so I do think that situating the kind of radicalization of workers' movements that's going on now in relationship to this deeper context uh -huh. uh, makes perfect sense. And that the French Revolution is, of course, one of the reference points, among, amongst others. There's also the a big commune one. of the 1870s. Oh, yeah. There's also the 68 strike that we were discussing just briefly earlier. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, Americans have really no idea. And now we're going to move into the, you know, how it's related to kind of a, a global movement. Americans don't have any idea what the term neoliberalism is. And, you know, people think liberal. OK, but it's not like that at all. And right. you observe that what's going on in France is part of a growing reaction against powerful global neoliberalism. And I, I think of other places like, uh, you know, that are at effect of decisions made in Germany by the uh, European uh, Union uh, and, you know, places like like Greece and Italy. Some people are kind of upset there as well with the austerity measures that are coming down as part of the neoliberal uh, globalization. How would you define neoliberalism? What are the powers invested in it? And and what gives you reason to say that the current strike is a component of the reaction against neoliberalism? A lot there, but you can do it. Well, yeah, neoliberalism really, I think, needs to be understood historically as a process of intensified capitalist accumulation that has its roots going back to at least the 70s, if not before. And through the course of the 70s, and then you see this very clearly in the 80s and 90s with the kind of Reagan-Thatcher uh, orientation, there was a combination of a series of mechanisms that allowed for global capitalism to deal with the crises of the 70s, but then also uh, re um, reinvigorate processes of global accumulation. One major factor in that, of course, is the globalization of production. And so you have the uh, outsourcing of labor to various black sites and sweatshops around the world, 
And then you develop uh, global networks, truly global networks of production. This is linked with the financialization of the economy and the kind of financial speculation that goes into neoliberalism, as well as to, and this is perhaps most closely related to what we're talking about, the reconfiguration of public finance through austerity, um, corporate bailouts, and other such things. And all of these need to be seen, all of these elements, of which there are others, right? It's not just that there is um, these three that I've mentioned. There's also the what some people call militarized accumulation, and the investment in the global repressive state apparatus is a form of accumulation for, uh, for making money. And all of these need to be seen as of a part because what neoliberalism really is, is an attempt on the part of an emergent transnational capitalist class to increase capitalist accumulation and to do this on the backs of working people. And this takes place, of course, in a context in which many uh, theorists, of social movements have highlighted a kind of shift that occurs in the, particularly in the 1990s, where we have the collapse of the Soviet Union and so the disappearance of a clear uh, anti-capitalist reference point, as well as the full integration of the uh, anti-colonial or many of the uh, anti-colonial struggles into what became kind of clientele states for global capital. Mm -hmm. And so some people talk about a shift that occurred between three worlds, right, where you have the American capitalist world, the Soviet communist world, and the quote-unquote third world, which kind of dominated the early Cold War, to an era that emerges in the 80s and 90s into the present, the era of neoliberalism, in which increasingly there's one world, and that's the capitalist world with no clear oppositional pole to Mm -hmm. it. Although, of course, there are many, many pockets of resistance and uh, many experiments and endeavors to uh, throw off the stranglehold of this increased capitalist accumulation. And so then this brings me to your last point, and that is that I think that what's going on in France really has to be understood in terms of the transnational struggles. So if neoliberalism is a transnational process of capitalist accumulation and intensified accumulation, then we have to uh, develop uh, maps and cartographies mm. of the transnational movements that are struggling against global capitalism in various ways. And this is precisely one of the things that I'm interested in, particularly because I think that France is a very important, I don't think it's exceptional, but it's a very important flashpoint for contemporary struggles. Oh, it tends to be. You know, it has been for a long time. One thing I love about France, it's got a great uh, history of uh, people out there in the streets. Sometimes the people do get a little excessive, shall we say, as they did in the uh, reign of terror after uh, King Louis was, was ousted. Um, but, you know, what, what about uh, the, uh, those who question the strike argue that France has a better welfare state, less inequality than most countries in the world, and that France just needs to adapt to these new realities of a global context in which everyone else has, a basic, has basically weaker welfare states and more inequality. What's your reaction to that? Well, this response is the neoliberal doxa par excellence, right? It's the general neoliberal opinion that has been imposed through the mass media and a Mm. kind of consensual uh, apparatus of, of knowledge production. It is not, my reaction would be that it is not because 
worker struggles have been crushed elsewhere, that we should encourage them being crushed in France as well. Uh, in other words, I think that one of the reasons that France is an interesting flashpoint in contemporary transnational struggles is, as you mentioned, there is, of course, a longstanding uh, tradition of radical social movements and workers' movements from below, and that the reason that France still has some semblance of social services and hasn't been completely privatized uh. is precisely because those struggles have been successful. And so instead of uh, assuming that the bar should be as low in France as it is everywhere else, meaning that we should just privatize and destroy what it is that the French workers have been able to maintain, I think that our perspective should be the opposite. And that is that we should historicize the austerity measures that have destroyed social services around the world, and then also support the struggles to not only either maintain, but then also increase them and to change modes of governance. So it's not simply about kind of protecting the social welfare state at all costs, but instead about radicalizing workers' movements in such a way that you can call into question the dominant modes of governance in the world today, which are pro-capitalist uh, governments for the rich. And Macron, as I mentioned in the article that we're discussing, is, of course, just one symptom among yes. many others. Yes, indeed. And uh, it, it is happening uh, worldwide. And, you know, here in uh, the United States, uh, you know, the, the owners of the of the uh, of capital uh, in the and the means of production say, well, you're lucky to have any job. You know, who are you to complain? And I imagine that's uh, the case, not just in France, but in many different places. And we talk about coming from below. I, I find that, uh, you know, real change always, always comes from below. I mean, the, here we have, uh, you know, the Democratic National Committee. They try to dictate to us, Democrats, uh, and yes, I am a, uh, a Democrat, th that, uh, you know, we just have to accept their pick. No, they work for us. There's a lot more of us than there are members of the uh, elite Democratic National Committee. And with regard to labor unions... You know, here in the United States, there have been splits within the labor unions. There have been uh, times when the official leaders kind of, you know, go along uh, with the uh, the people they work for, the employers, uh, and the rank and file don't necessarily have much of a say. How, how is that working out in the current situation in France? Are the labor unions, the official labor unions, are they going along with it, or are they sort of being dragged into uh, accepting this uh, labor action? There has been a split uh, within the labor unions with the more reformist uh, union, uh, the CFDT, actually accepting the false concession on the part of the government, which consisted in saying that, oh, we won't have a, uh, we want, we're not going to raise the retirement age. Instead, we're going to maintain the point system, uh, bleed the pension system for some 12 million euros, and then also uh, with that point system, we can adapt the age as we see fit. So in short, uh, it's not a concession at all. The leadership of the CFDT has aligned itself then on the government, and the government is using this in order to try to uh, increase their own credibility and then demonize those who are still on strike, as well as the major union, um, the... Um, CGT, right. which is still in support of the the strike and has not accepted the false uh, concessions on the part of the government. 
I think that one thing in a kind of larger context that is important to understand is the way in which certain forms of governance operate when it comes to labor under global capitalism is that there's an attempt to establish what, you know, a thinker like Gramsci referred to as a passive revolution. And what this consists in, in a nutshell, although there are different forms of it, is that you take the leadership of unions or particular movements, you integrate them into the governmental apparatus in various uh-huh. ways, uh-huh. either by you know pretending to make concessions or to make deals with them, etc., and then you use that in order to kill the movement from below, uh-huh. right? So you kind of cull off from the top the leadership, you get them to agree to certain governmental measures, and then it's, they are tasked with killing the movement from below. And so I couldn't agree more with what you were saying earlier, and that is that the people who have real power are the people from below. And it's not up to the leadership, particularly the leadership that cuts deals with the government and uh-huh. with the technocracy, to then impose upon the general people what it is that they can do or should do. And I, I read something recently, just very, very briefly, about a, a fellow named Philippe Martinet. Uh, who, who is he? What is his? Uh, do you know about him and what his role is in all this? Yeah, he's the leader of the CGT, so it's the slightly more radical union. Radical might be an overstatement uh, in that regard, because uh, there have been a number of moments in the past where uh, activists on the ground have expressed their uh, dismay with the ways in which the leadership has nonetheless aligned uh, uh, itself on power. And we see this most recently. One of the interesting tactics that strikers have used is that they targeted the headquarters of the CFDT, which is this more reformist union that ended up accepting the false concession of the Macron government. And so activists uh, went and uh, occupied the headquarters of this reformist union. And then electrical workers have also been shutting down electricity to the headquarters of the union. And what we've seen on the part of Martinez, who's the head of the CGT, the slightly more radicalized union, is that he has demonized these actions, um, called them, you know, inappropriate, and tried to align the workers uh, in his union simply uh, on taking marching orders from him. And so he's a, you know, a complicated figure in this regard. And I think that the most interesting kind of insurgent elements that are operative are really from those who are doing these types of direct actions and not taking their marching orders from above. Yeah, and the media always likes to find some leader. They even invent leaders if there aren't any there. And that's uh, been a very Absolutely. effective tactic through the years. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about what's going on in France, the big France general strike in the context of yellow vests and global class warfare with our guest, Professor Gabriel Rockhill. And, uh, you know, here in the United States, uh, Bernie Sanders, some people think he's he's far left, which to me is ridiculous. He's no more left uh, domestically than Dwight Eisenhower was, who wanted a very high tax on certain levels of income over and above a certain threshold amount. But in France, there's been kind of the establishment socialist party, which is, I think, pretty much to the left of Bernie Sanders. I mean, it's a genuine left, but and they've been a major player in French politics. Are they saying anything in this way? Or might, you know, as I say, there's there's politics and protest. Might this indicate a realignment of French politics going forward, do you think? Speculating? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. The Socialist uh, Party in France was largely discredited through the course of, this is going back to the 80s, the Mitterrand uh, regime in the 80s, as well as François Hollande, who was the, the socialist oh, right. president. And so the socialism that you see in France in the 80s and more recently, at least the socialism of the Socialist Party, well, it might well be to the left, at least in the case of Mitterrand, for instance, in relationship to uh, the quote-unquote socialist platform that Sanders is arguing for, it is nonetheless true that what you see in France largely follows the general shift that you see historically within at least Euro-American politics, but this is arguably much broader than that, and that is a shift from in the 1930s, for instance, when you really did have hard-left anti-capitalist political right. parties by the time you get to the 1970s and 80s, you have this drift towards the center and a realignment of at least establishment political parties where uh, the what used to be the left is no longer really on the political spectrum, at least to a certain extent. And then the quote-unquote socialist parties are more and more centrist and closely aligned on global capital. Mm-hmm. So in that regard, I don't see the French Socialist Party as you know having suffered from all of this discrediting. In fact, Macron even <laughs> worked for the uh, French Socialist Party uh, before founding his own party. So I don't see them as necessarily uh, benefiting from the current uh-huh. strike because they're uh-huh. identified largely as a, establishment. a part of the problem as opposed to part of the solution. But uh-huh. the question that you raise is an is a important one, and that is whether or not these forms of radical worker mobilization can then also either radicalize electoral politics, uh-huh. give new birth to new political parties, rejuvenate extant political parties, etc. And there are, of course, a number of political parties that yes. are to the left of the French Socialist Party on the, the French spectrum. I am sure they usually are. And you cite in your article the writing of William I. Robinson, who explained in books like Global Capitalism and the Crisis of Humanities that the transnational elite has sought to establish a neoliberal consensus in the era of globalization. How effective have they been? I, I think, you know, that's what we're really talking about here. Is there uh, some consensus forming, which is what they'd love to do, to have people just accept that this uh, globalization uh, is reality and just accept it? How, how, how effective do you think it is? Is it still a little bit shaky? And, you know, is there, you think perhaps this is the beginning of, uh, of, of, Legit, uh, uh, strong enough energy to uh, shake it up a little bit, and perhaps try to inject some actual democracy into the economy. No, absolutely. I think that the neoliberal consensus that uh, the ruling class has tried to impose during the kind of long era of neoliberal globalization is the idea that only one world is possible, and in that world we have an economy that is based on privatization and the maximization of wealth for the owners, and that there's no possibility of having a different economic system, as well as the idea that the kind of pseudo-democracies that we have, which are purportedly representative, but I think, as we all know, and this has been studied in some depth, the majority of individuals within purported democracies don't have a lot of uh, power when it comes to public policy, whereas corporations and lobbies have an overwhelming influence on governmental decisions. And so that doxa, that consensus that 
uh, neoliberal capitalism and pseudo-democracy are the only options, does require at least, I think, a minimum material basis in order to get people on board with that project. And that one of the complications and one of the dominant contradictions that you see in the contemporary historical conjuncture is that with the increased austerity measures and the ongoing assault on working people around the world, there are, of course, fewer and fewer people who have the material basis, right, the just Mm -hmm. economic uh, support by which they could believe in this system. And this is part of the contradiction that is rending the neoliberal consensus, because Mm -hmm. you can't uh, have a kind of rule by consensus while at the same time destroying people's living conditions. And it's within the cracks within that system that I think that you see, of course, uh, really resurgent uh, global modes of organization that are calling into question not just this government here or this particular right, refer- right. this particular governmental action, but instead an entire global system that is economic and political at one and the same time. Boy, that was well put. And I did want to ask, you know, in, in addition to... Uh the, the struggle over uh, levels of economic inequality uh, in which shockingly few people own a shockingly high percentage of the world's wealth, there's also global warming. In terms of the global struggles, is there a connection between those two, do you think? Yes, absolutely. I would just like to highlight that the shocking socioeconomic disparity is unprecedented historically. Yes, mm. right? Every year Oxfam publishes these reports where it basically demonstrates that, the, in, according to the most recent one, it's um, 1% of the global population owns over 50% of global wealth. Right? So we are in at a degree of socioeconomic polarization never before seen in history and is the result of the global neoliberal capitalist system and how it operates. And that hand in hand with that, we have an ecological crisis that is completely unprecedented in its um, level of destruction of the biosphere. And that, of course, these are intimately connected to one another Mm -hmm. because the socioeconomic system that we have, capitalism, particularly in what I was referring to earlier is this one world as opposed to three worlds, is a system that is based on the maximization of profit at the expense of life. And that life includes human life, of course, but well beyond that includes the entire biosphere. And so the central driving factor behind human-made global warming is not the totality of humanity. It is the ruling class of a capitalist economy that is privileging profit over people and nature. And this does add uh, an additional intensity to current struggles, because the struggle at this point in time is not only a struggle for human beings globally to be able to make a life for themselves and not just be kind of incarcerated within this global system of repression and economic degradation, It's also a struggle within which the very biosphere is at stake, and it is possible and very likely if the system continues in the way that it's headed, that the conditions of possibility of human life, and for that matter, life beyond just humans, is rendered impossible. And this is, of course, not simply something that uh, I'm pointing out as something I'm personally aware of, but this is part of the struggles, right? This is 
regularly integrated into the struggles that we've been talking about in France, but we also see transnational mobilization precisely around this question. Boy, there is a lot of that certainly going on. Well, I wonder what part of what's going on in France, uh, which is, part, you know, it's a transnational problem. I wonder what might be replicable in uh, other countries that might be frightening the globalists. And uh, how do you see, let me just, uh, you know, morph into, how do you think it's going to come out? What do you see, look into the crystal ball? What do you see slightly ahead with regard to this big strike in France? Well, it's, of course, very difficult to know exactly what is going of to course. transpire. Yeah, I yeah. think that the the ways in which there has been a radicalization of workers' movement that has been growing out of the series of struggles that have rocked France over the the last few years, right? This is uh, simply part of uh, ongoing radical social struggles, and that whatever transpires in the coming weeks or months um, will not necessarily, you know, if, for instance, the strike dies down, there are minor concessions, etc., it will not... Um, negate the fact that there's an intensification of worker struggles and that these will continue to grow and mobilize over time. But there's also the very strong possibility that through the ways in which the private sector has joined into the struggle, there are uh, numerous universities and high schools that are occupied, the teachers and, um, and students and doctors and lawyers are involved in the strike, that if the struggle continues to ratchet itself up, then it might become it becomes possible for uh, more uh, radical outcomes, including not just the abrogation of the proposed counter reform to the pension system, but more generally the removal of the Macron regime, a shift in modes of governance, and and other such things. Um, and I do think that, as you mentioned, this has to be understood transnationally because. If we look back to the early 21st century, there was the, there were the major square movements that took place, you know, slightly over a decade ago, mm-hmm. and really brought together people around the globe who were rejecting authoritarian regimes and their complicity with global capitalism. And what you see now emerging in Latin America, in the Middle East, in Africa, really around the world, yes. are what is perhaps a new cycle of revolutionary insurgencies that have learned from the square movements and that are changing some of their tactics, radicalizing them, and consolidating resources in new and interesting ways. So instead of simply occupying a public square and mm-hmm. you know putting forth a series of demands, you have in France, through the course of the Yellow Vest movement, targeted days of action in which every Saturday there would be a massive mobilization, ah. but that then these are combined with forms of active strike, where workers will go on strike, but then they'll use the time when they're on strike to perform direct action and targeted direct action. This very different set of tactics that I think are shifting the, the global dynamic of class struggle and hopefully then opening up new modes of organization, as well as new forms of coordination transnationally, which is, of course, quintessentially important to the strength of these movements. Boy, that's got to be confounding the powers that be, all this uh, creative stuff sure. individually. So if this fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. If people want to follow uh, your thoughts and work, Counterpunch, is there, uh, they can go to that, other other websites to which you can direct them? My personal website, sure. which is gabrielrockhill.com, I have oh, links good. to a lot of my journalistic articles, books, and other activities. So that's at least a centralized hub where there's quite a bit of information. Thank you so much. Very, very informative and uh, somewhat optimistic, dare I say. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. The moon is on the
faisons table rase sous l'esclave debout, debout. Le monde va changer de base, nous ne sommes rien soi.